ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the drop at DFT. We are in the middle of our opening the umbrella season here at Digital Film Tree. We are unpacking all things that have gone into making season three come to life. And we are joined today by two of our VFX generalists here at Digital Film Tree, one Mr. Joshua Gluck and one Mr. Cameron Ake. Thank you both for joining us here today. Glad to be here. Pleasure. So guys, do me a favor here. I want to start by understanding what you're even looking at when you first get a plate. And then how does one even begin to describe to you what a Kugelblitz is supposed to look like or a membrane teleportation? We usually get a bunch of, of pieces. It's we, we get the footage, we get if there's any additional element uh, elements that we have to add in that the client wants us to put in. Uh, sometimes the client provides clean plates, which is effectively the footage without the actor or the subject in it. So we have something to work with if we need to remove it. Um, and then we'll also get reference a lot of the time. And especially with this project, we actually had really great reference. Uh, they, they would do fully timed out um, animatics of the whole thing, which uh, made it a lot easier to, to match to and we didn't have to guess nearly as much. What does an animatic look like? It can, it can depend. I mean, the ones we do it, I know that the previous department at DFT does, they'll use um, low res models and, and animate them in a 3D space and uh, to kind of uh, set up all the locations and the camera angles. The uh, previous we got, I would describe as like low budget after effects compositing with like, you know, stock footage and, and basic effects to get the idea of what they want across. You know, just like really quick cutout shapes and things like that. Um, so basically it would just be the footage with like really, really slapped on uh, effects just to get the idea out there. Actually, Cameron, if I can pivot to you because you worked on the switchboard in season two and in season three. And I kind of want to start with you because you crossed those seasons, but also a larger question about collaborating and keeping tone not just across seasons, but across an episode or the season, because there it's not just us working on VFX. And so that's really interesting to me that you got to touch two different seasons of it, but then how do you collaborate in a way where things are, are coming together to have a similar look and quality? I will say, piggyback off what Josh said, the the, the direction and, the, and what the feel and the look for the show, it, it's very, um, well visioned so it's very easy for us to basically be given a still frame or like a, a reference piece to say this is what we're looking for and there is of course some wiggle room as far as like creativity goes but with season two you could tell like with a lot of the previs that they gave us that it was um pretty you know clear and cut like this is what we want and then when season three rolled around there was almost no confusion about how exactly they wanted to keep that 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 look going um, and really just came down to execution. Um, but a lot of the times there will be, you know, I'm trying to get in spoiler territory, but th there'll be uh, no, we things do that happen. Here. Camper, oh, okay, are you right. 
You haven't watched the drop? We are all about spoilers. We're unpacking the show. But like, so, so with the with the switch room, it clearly goes through a certain state of change where you have to uh, keep a tone um, to match whatever is going through, but also keep familiarity. Because, uh, like, you know, before in the switch room, when it's still functional and you have people, you know, looking at the screens, uh, they have like a specific look that they want to maintain. And then when it comes into a, a post-apocalyptic effect, um, you want it to still remain familiar, yet have the uh, art style that they have in mind, which, again, like the the previous team and, and director were very, they're on point. They, they definitely know what they're looking for when it comes to, to look and style for the show. Season two had a big, I'm assuming like the really big reveal as far as like um, the, the switchboard room. And so uh, there was this idea of it being like, it's like it's extremely long or infinite. Um, and then we basically did a setup that was procedural enough to then basically redo it in season three to fit whatever you know parameters like lighting set up and uh, whatever the environment they want it to look like. Um, so it was pretty familiar and comfortable with replicating that effect and then uh, plug and play at that point. It actually shows up in two episodes this season. Um, the first one is like when they jump ahead and it's a post-apocalyptic. Which is funny because, yeah, that one, arguably, that one wasn't infinite. It was very finite, but it had to mimic same sort of like the monitors and the class and it had to give off that same feel but decrepit and i guess yeah post-apocalyptic and the, and the real great thing is especially since this was a repeated effect when if they want us to look at something uh, it's something to look very specific they basically just say here's a clip from last season make it look like this mm-hmm. and then yeah. that's, that's very helpful that's very helpful yeah they're really good at consistency absolutely did you guys ever touch any of the LIDARs or need them, use them, have access to them? How did that inform anything for you guys? Not the LIDAR, but we did get um, an HDRI, which is a high, demic, uh, high dynamic range image. Um, and that was for uh, the shot with uh, the shots with Grace, the, the robot person. Oh. Uh, which way, way later, we, well, we'll get into that when we get into that, but we basically had to do a bunch of 3D um, augmentation of her body. And so no, they- No, get into it now. It was something uh, about like eyeballing an arm or something, right? Yep. So, so to make a long story short, there was a production change. I don't know if it was like COVID related or if they just changed how the story plays out. But in the original footage, when they teleport back, um, Grace is- in, is very destroyed. She's missing one eye entirely. And then on this eye, there was a bunch of wires and cabling that came out. And also she had a, a, a missing arm. So on set, there was a prosthetic of a sleeve and a bunch of wires coming out of it. And she had her arm in a green sleeve. And something, as I said about the edit changed and they were like, hey, can you guys put her arm back and one of her eyes and remove the wires and put some fiber optic cables in the other eye in this entire scene. So we're like, yeah, okay, all right. So there were some shots where we were able to fake it with, with uh, 2D methods, but there were a couple of shots where the camera and Grace moved so much. The only way to kind of do it was with a full 3D method. So we completely replaced the CG arm, um, which Cameron modeled, which was great. And then uh, also uh, replacing her eye and the fiber optics. And so to light those, 
the VFX team from production side provided us, provided us with a, a big um, HDRI, which is basically, as I said, a high dynamic range image of the set. So we, I used that as the, the foundation of the, of the lighting and then just augmented it as necessary. But it was it was it was only used for two shots. But that that was our main like uh, the main thing that was provided to us. And the jump on the the HDRI, it's it always tickles me whenever I see. Because really, when you shoot an HDRI and you're try trying to essentially uh, make a VFX fit into the the scene with the same lighting without having to guess and, and move fake lights around, uh, the image does help provide lighting accuracy by taking a picture of a giant typically it's a giant metal ball on set so you get what is called a mirror ball and then it turns it uh from from that shader to a dome light and then you have a almost um one-to-one -one representation of where each light is in the scene by it being in a, a spherical uh, shape um and it's always a treat to see whenever they take these pictures to see all the crew and the, you see all the cameras and the crew and the equipment in the background, because you're looking at the, the, the subject matter in the shot, but behind it, you see the mirror uh, reflection of um, everyone else in it. So it's fu always funny to see, you know, potential uh, uh, real world lighting and, and, and movement of people in that shot uh, for HDRIs. Well, can you tell me, how do you even, how do you build an arm then? Like, are you starting with what it, looked like or well so fortunately the arm was uh arguably one of the easier compared to like the eye and wires mostly just because they gave us a i mean i wasn't expecting it but a a full uh, uh 3d captured um of, of the of grace in her outfit so we had the uh exact dimensions of her arm itself as well as the potential dimensions of the cloth itself. So really all I had to do was clean up the model, uh, make sure I was able to apply textures to it, and then of course go in and add you know, hand detail and texture on top of that um, through projections or painting. Uh, but basically I had a one-to-one -one, um, reference to, to what the actress who played Grace looked like. And then the eyeball, kind of same thing. <laughs> like oh no, eyeball, eyeball. That was a. Uh, I mean, I will say, as far as um, elements go, I feel like there's plenty of eyeballs uh, readily available within default software. But it's typically just a, you know, it's an oblong shaped sphere with uh, projected or painted on uh, irises and and eye detail and textures. And I mean, fortunately, they did give us a close up of her eye. Uh, so we had exactly what her eye color and look had to look like in the shot. Um, but yeah, that was mostly all done from scratch. I mean, where do you, how do you build in that? Are you importing something or are you like hand drawing something on a tablet? Like, how is this happening? Yeah, fortunately, I mean, honestly, having the dimensions of her face was, was what helped size up the eye and fit it in. Because once we had where her skeletal structure when uh, it was just a matter of taking the CGI, placing it in 3D space, taking the wires, placing it in 3D space, and then passing it off to rigging and animation, which is where Josh came in for these shots. And he would, uh, have, once, once the shot was tracked, it would just fit in naturally and organically to the actress because we had a actual 3D live reference to, to match to. Uh, it was a huge, huge advantage to have.
And so what was on her face? Like, was there something blocking out an eye? I will say this, the prosthetics team for uh, Umbrella Academy is phenomenal. Um, and it was, it was a crying shame to kind of have to remove a lot of that because whatever they had in play or in store for um, Grace um, that, that had content that was cut, uh, it was, a, whoever did it did a wonderful job, uh, had wires coming down, Rebecca eye, robot eye was plucked out. And we unfortunately had to remove it and trim it down to a more fiber optic look. Gluck, I feel like you are sitting there ready to jump in. Um, I, I honestly, I'd say the clean plating was a lot harder than the CG. A lot of the time when you're modifying a shot, you have to remove a, a bunch of stuff. And in this case, the subject matter first to replace uh, a, so, so that you basically aren't constrained by where they are. So for the sake of example, as I, as I said earlier, Grace, the actress had um, a bunch, besides what was on her face, she had gen genuinely this big stump of, of cabling and cloth coming out of her shoulder. And she had a, you know, she, she, she has all of her limbs. So she had a, a real life, you know, green hand. And so in all of these shots, they're rotating and her hands getting in front of stuff and her shadows and the shadows and the prosthetic is, is coming in front of things. So because we're removing all that, we had to paint in any method possible to fill in the background, which included walls, the stairs. There are a couple shots where five is uh, bringing her over and all of those prosthetics cover his, his, his uh, suit or his uh, uniform. And so we have to replace the lapel the shirt, uh, you know, this collar, some of Grace's costume. So that all gets removed and then the CG goes on top of that. And so just because of the amount of movement and rotation in these shots, the, the clean plating, I think actually took the longest. Well, what about the frost then? How is in oh. three or two when the frost comes in, tell me about, like, is that a clean plate? So fortunately all that was added um, it's all additive work, uh, meaning that you, it, it's mostly work you add on top of plates as opposed to removing elements from plates to then replace. There was a series of shots that it was supposed to go across, and, you know, and I guess due to timing constraints and or change of direction, the, sh the effect that the frost that I originally had was going to go on, that shot got removed. And so all the setup I had for it was essentially um, more or less not usable because the shot that they choose uh, chose to move it to was the scaffolding shot and that particular shot being a relatively long dynamic camera move um, that required high precision tracking because you're working with a lot of different angles and planes on the scaffolding not just like a flat surface that took a rigorous amount of testing and getting it to work and then uh, once it, also trying to find a look for it um, because the shot was, since the shot was so long and the pacing was so specific, you had to do a few trial and errors uh, to try to get the exact timing of the effect down. And so that particular shot was challenging mostly because the amount of frost cover as part, uh, what part of the scaffolding, so when, when you see the shot initially, it's a little bit in front of him. And that was probably where I, I spent most of my time trying to uh, apply a look and effect and get the timing down. But then as, as you know, versions and versions get going and going, um, it started to spread more and more 
and then it started to amp it up more, which caused the effect to try to have to be more uh, on point with tracking. Because once you see it more visibly, it's it's, it's really uh, unforgiving if it's not stable to the shot. So with that particular shot, what initially started out uh, as simulation turned into projections because it went from doing uh, an effect along like a one surface down to multiple, uh, as well as laying down planes on every surface as we could to project an ice frost texture and then layer as much um, fog stock across it to really sell a, a you know, evaporating effect to it, like a dry ice effect. Is there a world in which something like that, because you just said kind of like a dry ice effect, is there a world in which practical makes sense? There can be an argument for it. Um, I do think that given, if, if thought beforehand, um, I'd say it would have to be sort of uh, premeditated when it comes to shooting a shot. Um, I think when they originally shot the first shot, they may have had that in mind where practical or stock footage could get away with it. But since that got cut, unfortunately, it was kind of, um, and, and the effect got moved to a different surface of a different shot camera angle uh, that kind of got thrown out the window and it turned into a sort of, um, you know, pivot and adjust situation. Uh, but I do think practical still plays a pretty huge effect, especially if you're trying to um, sell subtlety, I think practical plays a really good key uh, role in, in adding just enough effect to a shot without having to go in, simulate, because I mean, you know, rolling fog or, or um, simple smoke effects, that stuff is always, I mean, you can get nuanced with it for sure, but, you know, having just a general stock footage uh, library of dry ice or, or fog assets uh, or smoke, that, that stuff can easily be applied to help save or uh, uh, crunch time and to help also just sell an effect. It feels like stock can be sometimes one of the most unsung heroes in special effects just because of how much of a time saver as well as uh, just getting a general look down as far as like previs or something. Stock is also very good for quick effects for reference. Um, for example, there are several other shows uh, that use stock in, in sort of, you know, animatics, if you will, to really help sell what they're going for. Now, it may, may, may not be exactly what the client's looking for, but it is a wonderful baseline and gets a lot of check marks out of the way. And I mean, yeah, stock is a, is absolutely still alive and well in this industry. Well, just on, on the note of practical things, uh, and I would call it an unfortunate truth about modern day production, which is that there are an infinite number of options for editing for VFX. And so, and, and everything is on, on, on a, on a breakneck schedule. So very frequently, even if things are done on set practically, there might be a change in the edit. There might be a change in the story where that, or, or, or it just didn't work out on the set as well as they had hoped. And so it is not, an uncommon occurrence for what they have done to need to be removed and then replaced or augmented with either stock footage or a sim. If they needed to be do something very specific, then a simulation or a, a something in a, a, a in three D. Um, but at at worst, in those instances, then it's it's absolutely fantastic reference, and and helps us match it a lot better. 
So that's kind of a good segue into the blink. <laughs> and 303, because this blink has, ex- has existed in both prior seasons. And then here you have it in 303 in a very fast, very fast bathroom scene. And you guys, this was your first time working with it. Is that right? Yeah. For this season, where did you begin with that? Again, I mean, as I said before, they give us really great reference for how fast they wanted it to happen and when they wanted the effect to start and end. And so the original look had been established by another VFX company. I'm not entirely sure which one, um, but they've they've kind of refined the look of it over two seasons and a bunch of different companies, because we all got different sequences, had to replicate the same effect. So they actually shared their project files with everybody. So I could break down how they were creating it and modify it as needed to fit the scope of the shot. Fortunately, there's people on YouTube who just make compilations of, of like everything. So when going into the sequence, I looked up um, some of those and tried to find the shots that appealed to me and then match those. And with very little exception, most of the of the shots were actually approved in the first go, which I'm very happy about. In that sequence, actually, again, I mean, I know I said it before, but actually the, the, the hardest part about that was, was the clean plating because Lila and Five are fighting the entire, you know, the entire time in close proximity. And so the blink uh, is, is, is a multi-layered effect. It's not just like a distortion and a, and a glow. It, it kind of has to affect certain parts of the image and distort certain parts of the image and not others. So Lila or Five, whoever was, was blinking, would have to be completely removed from the shot first then where the portal would be would have to be tracked in and then they'd have to use that as a transition and very carefully have them kind of come in naturally and then show up for the rest of the plate. So there was actually a shot for the sake of example where Lila teleports behind five and their reflections are both in the mirror behind them. So I had to remove Lila and then I had to remove her from the reflection and then animate Five's reflection to match his actual foreground movement. And then when she teleports in, it blends back into the original plate. So it, so yeah, so the, so the blink kind of like with everything else, I mean, you have the, the main effect itself and then you have all of the work that you have to do before you can even get to it. Um, and so it was, it was a very interesting and kind of fun uh, experience to go through. So when you said, depending on how it needs to conform to the shot, I am glad I didn't interrupt you because I think I got some of that answer, but I guess then my other question would be, is there an easy one? Because I it never would have occurred to me that you had to take someone out of the shot to actually then put that in. I mean, of course, like I understand reflections and it happens a lot, but like, yeah, is there an easy shot then? Like, yeah, how would someone effect supervise that? Like, would you film them separately, or how how could that? Whoa. The, the easiest ones are the ones where they don't interact directly. So there's 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 a, a couple of shots where they, where they're far enough away from each other that you can you can just cut it in half and have you know one just fade on essentially. Um, in this case, most of them aren't like that. Um, 
but th there were, there were a few shots where it was basically just, you know, here's plate one of, or, uh, of both five and Lila. Fortunately, they, they filmed some clean plates for us. So we didn't have to rebuild everything from, from scratch. But so here's, here's a plate of the both of them. You basically just do a quick shape to make a clean plate of one of them not being there. And then you do the effect over top of that. But in, in this case, most of them, they were interacting. And honestly, that's the best way to shoot it because an actor trying to imagine where another actor is, if they're not actually standing there and fight with them is going to be difficult. Filming the same camera move in multiple shots is going to be near impossible unless, unless you're in a very, very, very controlled environment, which most of the time you're not. So the, really the only way to do a lot of this is to film both of them at the same time and then just uh, spend a lot of time removing them. And so then is the, is the blink itself, does it change depending on their movements? Like I would assume if they're like charging and there's, so it's depending on their height or the, the way in which they're moving, does the blink itself then shift? Yes. I mean, so there actually is some perspective to it. They kind of, they move into it. Uh, sometimes the actor is able to do that enough on set in the shot. Sometimes we have to push it a little bit so it looks like they have some momentum and the effect is basically a, a, a distortion of like a like a think of it like a blanket that you're pushing into and then it tears and, and covers them up. Cameron did you touch the blink? No fortunately uh, I got to sidestep <laughs> however there were several for that sequence. Yeah Josh Josh was pretty keen on that particular sequence um and I was more than happy to let him handle that while I uh, put out fires of my own. Uh, I believe I was still working on the ice effect at that point. Um, but as far as, as shots that I've touched in that sequence, you know, it's expected. But the, the modesty, that's, a, that's another thing people don't uh, expect to see is, is actors or actresses wearing uh, uh, modesty garbs, you know, because they're, they're, you know, having to be filmed as though they were nude. And then having the artists go in, remove said modesty garb, and make it as though they were nude without revealing anything. So it's always, I had a brief touch. I'm, I've run into those time to time in the industry, but it's always just kind of a, I don't know, it's funny every time you open it up and you're like, all right, how do I make this person look naked while also not looking naked? Basically, you're saying in a more diplomatic way that you had to paint Lila's butt back on. Butts, boobs. I mean, it's every, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. I mean, that's fair then. The fans know she was wearing modesty garb. So there you go. It's not actually her bits and pieces. That's good. Yeah. Job. They took care of them. Well done. Can I ask if the 308 portal was cool or was it just architecture for you guys the portal was was a fun thing to kind of break down again i you know i i say this a lot but actually the reference they give us was very helpful um that shot had fewer revisions than i thought there were going to be um but uh for for the sake of context hargreaves shoots uh, a flare flare goes up into the sky and then hits a invisible force field type thing and then gets sucked into a portal the flare the smoke the explosion were all done in houdini with a with a fortunately pretty simple simulation setup and then the the rest of the way was was finessing it and adding the actual glowing portal itself um in in nuke 
and uh it, yeah i i think the 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 houdini sim was was a bit more interesting to work on because the portal was effectively just a box with some textures it, it it went from just being some distortion to then being could you have some some glow on it and then it went to can you break up the glow so it looks like the flare broke into bits and is floating around and so that actually received more revisions than anything else but it was it was it was fun and, and very satisfying to get that uh to to its completion so you're saying a box with textures and then turning it into something far more what are some of the elements or like again pedestrian questions because i don't work with houdini um and you have great references but then how long does something take to build going from a box with textures to the final product the smoke sim and the, the flare itself were very 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 straightforward um it was uh a effectively the the flare itself was a cylinder the cylinder was used as an emitter that cast off smoke as it went up and then i had a, a, a an explosion sim trigger when it hit a certain point basically when it comes to compositing most of what you're going to do is going to be a combination of um, color keying and noise uh, randomly generated noise so you use a lot of those um, noises layered over each other facing different directions some conform to the shape of the box some are um, animated to spread out in conjunction with some stock footage of like ink splotches and things like that. And those are then used partially as textures to kind of make it brighter or darker in, in those areas, but also as displacement maps, which kind of give that ripple blurry effect. And that's what kind of make, that's what makes it look like energy. So you use a combination of all that and a lot of layering over top to make it go from just kind of flat, you know, box shapes to something that's rippling the background behind it. Hypothetically, this whole process could have been done in Houdini, but since, uh, you know, again, crunch for time and also trying to get an effect, uh, compositors will tend to use very, you know, nifty tricks or stock footage even to sort of uh, shave off as much time as possible. So what Josh did was both uh, technically very, you know, uh, uh, smart as well as he, he thought outside of the box, no pun intended, uh, to try to get an effect without having to lean too heavily on just the simulations because that stuff can dogpile. And fortunately, the versions he was able to, to keep it under was uh, a huge blessing as well. Gluck, can I ask you what you mean when you say layering? And the intention of this question is because Anyone who wears makeup or, you know, does makeup layering, right? So it's blending colors and it's texture or lining and things like that. So when you say that you're adding layers for an effect to really come to life, what is, what does that mean? Is it another element or is it, how does layering work for you? Uh, effectively? Yeah. I mean, I think the more accessible way of describing it is actually how Photoshop and After Effects would do things, which would be, it's genuinely a stack, one on top of the other. So when it comes to layering, it would be different elements animating different ways, being different resolutions or, or sizes. You might have coarser textures, finer textures, and they are placed kind of individually to get the detail and the motion where you want it. Um, while also having a, a more nuanced and complex 
look because you're having information from all these different sources. And then also when you say stock, are they, and coming from like the previous background where in Unity and Unreal, we can buy elements to bring into the engine. But then when I hear stock, I think of like Shutterstock or something. What are you guys bringing in? I mean, it can, <laughs> it can be Shutterstock, um, but there are, there are sites that are more geared specifically for visual effects purposes where they'll shoot it a very specific way or they'll extract it. Um, and sometimes we have to film it ourselves. Uh, that is more complicated because obviously you have to have a, a big setup to, to, you know, if you, if you're filming ink drops, you need a, a huge tank with a you know backlight. And that's more often than not, especially for smaller studios, it, it's, it's, it's a pain. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, you, you can source from anywhere. You can source from cell phone footage if it works for the shot. Yeah, I think uh, stock is also um, heavily used uh, in conjunction with whatever shot as far as being like uh, foreground, midground, background layered effects. Uh, so having a stock footage of, say, uh, a fire or smoke, having it over black or green so that you can key off and put that in front of an element to help sell an effect in the foreground or midground or background and having that uh, layer subtly over um, the plate to make it look as though it's obviously on the on, on set. And so with Josh, his specific example is that he was able to take uh, stock footage and use it not, not traditionally, but just um, in a creative way to simulate a stock effect of the look that he's going for to apply that to whatever visual effect simulation he's trying to do in Nuke. Okay. I feel like my brain is adjusting and getting there. Thank you. It is a lot of jargon. <laughs> there is a lot of jargon. It's less about the jargon, I think, at least for me, and more coming from, uh, at first, for myself at least, a pedestrian idea of like combining things in an image. And again, kind of thinking of people out there who are very knowledgeable on like adding things in their Instagram story or a TikTok, or maybe they have progressed to Photoshop because they're taking photos and they can manipulate things or going all the way into Unreal or Unity like we do in Previs. And while some things are similar, especially concepts might be similar, they're so wildly different like even the differences between After Effects and Nuke, right? So there are node structures that can carry things forward, whereas in After Effects, you don't have that. So just kind of trying to think differently, like I think that's what's most shocking to me about what you guys do is that there is a significant creative depth that you bring to what you are delivering However, you're doing it with software. It still takes a technological brain. And so even though I know we still need to talk about a membrane teleportation, I'm very interested on how you guys even see that craft, that you are deeply entrenched in technology, but it is in service of something so very creative. Start with it, Cameron. Do it. Oh. Yeah, no, um, I will say it is definitely the left brain, right brain uh, job. Uh, it's You definitely have a 
vision in mind, there is a more um, algorithmic mentality you can you know, tackle any particular problem with. But at the end of the day, um, there is an effect that you want to achieve. Uh, and then, you know, software obviously being a wonderful tool to help achieve that effect. Um, some software is better than others for achieving certain effects. And so it does take somewhat of a logistic brain to sort of be able to um, compartmentalize and, and be able to know what works best with what situation. Um, hence, I mean, any generalist work, uh, some artists will favor other softwares and be more familiar than others. But um, yeah, it's, it's really just comes down to uh, the effect you're trying to pull off and, and having the sort of experience or vision to uh, see it be executed um, as quickly and, and uh, effectively as possible. I mean, in a day, you guys are in what? Maya, Houdini, Nuke. Do do either of you use After Effects or both of you? I do. I do. Yeah, so, yeah. like, when you say whatever tool is, is best, all I hear are render and import times. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, it's very much similar to, uh, for example, you know, uh, you can apply it to a, a more traditionalist artist background. You know, you could technically use a mop to paint uh, on a canvas, or you could technically use a feather, or you can get a paintbrush, or you know, you could use a, a hammer to try to you know sculpt something. And and a lot of the times, if that's the effect you're going for, then you would want to use said tool. But in reality, it's it's once you know all the 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 tricks and, and the uh, gimmicks that each software is able to um, to be exploited or used, you kind of, uh, you know, you can kind of get creative with like, oh, this software is, you know, I can do something a little interesting here. And that's where the kind of imagination comes from because knowing like this goes with this, you know, square peg into square hole. Um, a lot of the times, once you get familiar with softwares, you start to stumble across or have aha moments where you're like, oh, to achieve this effect in this weird way, you do it like this. And then that's where kind of the creative imagination comes from is, is some softwares are unintentionally super effective at achieving something. If you really push the boundaries from what's initial use, uh, which again, Houdini and Maya, especially Nuke, uh, those, those two softwares for me seem to always have some trick up its sleeve or some unique effect that, goes above and beyond what I think the uh, initial programmer's intentions were. Well, Mr. Gluck, anything to add on that one? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, you, you don't want to marry yourself to one specific software. It helps to be flexible and to kind of figure out what's going to get you to the result you want the fastest. Like Nuke, I'll, at this point, I'll, I use for practically all of my compositing. Um, but I will switch over to After Effects for very specific things. Um, it's really good at, at motion graphics. So anything involving a UI uh, user interface for phones or you know holographics or, or things like that, I can build and animate them a lot faster in After Effects because the tools are ge really geared for it and the ones in Nuke are not. Whereas in Nuke, they have a much more fleshed out 3D setup. So you can actually bring in models and manipulate them and have more flexibility and not have to go necessarily back to a 3D package as frequently. 
it's always refreshing to go back and be able to, uh, uh, you know, have these creative moments where you're like, oh, I'm going to try this out and see if this works. And then next thing you know, your entire workflow has changed because you've uh, discovered or, or, you know, you caught on to a, a factor, you know, technique that you hadn't thought of prior. And all of a sudden the workload is more efficient, faster, uh, more effective. And that's what's so great about these softwares a lot of the times is being slightly creative, more importantly, lazy to a certain degree. Because once you do something over and over, you kind of develop a numbness and you almost want to see if there's a, <laughs> a easier route to take. And so that then sparks the creativity that I want to try something different here. And then if it works, it's amazing. And it's always refreshing to be able to open up a software over and over again and still be able to push its boundaries. Teleportation membrane, forgive me, is it because I mean I don't I don't know that there actually is a name in it in the episode, but is it the giant thing at the end, the yellow thing? Is that the teleportation membrane or what is the no, teleportation? The, the membrane takes place in the afterlife sequence with Klaus and Luther. Um, mm-hmm. when Luther starts throwing Klaus around in a very literal sense. Oh, the wall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They don't like sit there and be like, you're not coming through the teleportation membrane. And I was like, I don't, I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. So holy crap, you guys did that. The wall that like Klaus is on one side, Luther comes through it. They're sitting there watching the TV. And then every time that he jumps, like, literally into like the the bouncy house and all that that was you guys yes when we did kind of designed it i they they wanted like a a warbly distortion look and so when we set it up we basically kind of thought well there's an already an existing warbly distortion look you know in in the blink teleporting so let's match that visual language so a lot of the same elements are there uh, so there's, there's the distortion, of course, and then there's the um, bubble, or what you might call it a lip, of the effect that wraps around them as they pass through it. Um, fortunately, all of these shots went pretty quickly, so you didn't we didn't have to get like that thorough with it. But the general effect is you have the person cut out. They go back exactly like the blink. You basically uh, animate it so so they get covered up by the the background. And then in this case, the main differences between this and the blink is that there's kind of a bouncy effect as they pass through it. So it it it, it trampolines to a stop. And there's also some chromatic aberration, which is the the separating of, of of colors. So you get a little bit of of blue and red separating from each other uh, to kind of give it that that like it's refracting the light behind it more intensely and so yeah so it was the 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 blink was the foundation of the idea and then it was just implemented differently for the sequence i I don't know how to ask this better but why (laughs) why was the blink the foundation for that i mean at the end of the day it it is it's a similar idea it's it's an i guess sort of an energy door that they push through so and i again, I felt it was kind of, it made sense to use the same visual language for consistency um, instead of coming up with com- a completely like out of out of uh, pocket look. And how does one isolate the reds and blues? Legitimate question. Is that something that's manipulatable in? Yeah. 
I wouldn't know. Every every video uh, color video is made up of three channels, which is red channel, green channel, and blue channel, and you add them together and you get the color. But and so, so that that's you guys doing that. This is not happening in color. That's you guys working with that on the yeah. VFX side. But yeah, yeah I mean, that that's that's it's fortunately got it gotten sim pretty simple to do because all of these um, channels are are I, I guess selectable would be the right term. You you can isolate them and have them do different things from each other. Did you touch the teleportation membrane, Mister? No, fortunately, yeah, no, fortunately, I was uh, I was out of the woodwork on that one. Josh has been. Fortunately, the only one to, uh, or for me, uh, to keep it consistent, like he, he was steamrolling when it came to portals or any sort of um, distortion anything, effect. So anything with an energy effect, I, I, I either yeah, he seemed to be on or was was thrown on. Yeah, more more or less, uh, sticks sometimes get drawn. <laughs> so uh, a lot of the times, I mean, also other fires, you know, having to be put out, but. Um, yeah, I think I think as far as uh, teleportation, portal, uh, any sort of membrane, Josh was able to uh, just knock those out. Well, did we miss anything? Well, re really, like like with most shows, mo most of the work is not the in-your-face, you know, big effects. It's it's all in the clean plating or the changing things so a lot of especially what cameron did uh was you know changing signs removing people uh change the logo on the taxi one of the that uh purposefully goes unnoticed um uh and it's 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 designed that way is the reflections a lot of the times in umbrella academy or any other shows you'll see mirrors you'll see glass reflections you'll see uh car reflections and you know, those, if camera gets close enough, you'll see those effects uh, or, or the, the people on set or the crew and equipment. And a lot of the time that can be a huge pain removing all the, the detail and reflections. And so uh, I will say that, that some shows take up a lot of time trying to get those removed specifically. You're, you're both absolutely right. There is not a show in existence that I can think of including even like talk shows and certainly not reality shows that do not have VFX in them. Um, I think the closest only show, but not even because af especially after the pandemic, even Saturday Night Live is no longer live all the time or Saturday, uh, you know, the short films with like Andy Samberg and everything, like it's not always live. So there really is not that I can think of a show as an example, that does not have some kind of cleanup, some kind of VFX in place. Even your broadcast news, that is VFX with the weather person. And there are plenty of broadcasters that even have beauty fixes that, you know, are happening as it's being tweaked and the chirons on the bottom and they're doing it as it's going live. So it's really, really interesting um, to me, at least that this is like a secret it's not a secret folks yeah. <laughs> but uh gluck something looked like it was about to come out of your mouth there i i, I that is a, a very <laughs> that's a subject i have a lot of opinions about especially coming from a photography background that's um, another drop gluck that's another drop <laughs> yeah we, we can't get into that now 
Well, guys, thank you so much for breaking down some of the biggest moments of season three of the Umbrella Academy. And more than that, thank you for doing it and bringing this to audiences and bringing everybody's vision to life. Steve, Jeff, Everett, they have all just sung your praises. And I'm so grateful that I get to work alongside of you. Thank you for your talents and thank you for sharing it. Yeah, it's a treat. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. And 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 Everett and guys, if you're watching, give us give us more for next season, please. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> more, more, more of that stuff. Oh boy. <laughs> All right, guys. Appreciate you. We will see you on drops again soon. Uh, All right. Yeah. Later, everybody.